Going Linux, episode 268, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and its applications and using them to get things done. In today's episode, listener feedback. If you'd like to send us feedback, our email is goinglinux at gmail.com and our voicemail is 1-904-468-7889. Hey Larry, how's your week been? Wonderful week, Bill. How about you? Good, good, good. Broke a tooth, that's about it. Oh, that does not good. Oh, and broke some ribs. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, what, were you in a bar fight or something? What's going on here? I was playing a little too much in Taekwondo with the other black belts, and one guy kicked me a little too hard and cracked about three of my ribs. So, <clears throat> yeah. You know, I, I found out something. Um, I'm getting too old for that. <laughs> 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 Linux using Linux is much easier. Yeah, you need something to keep fit, though. So you know. But on the other hand, if what's keeping you fit is uh, hurting you, <laughs> there's a message in there somewhere. Well, I've been doing it for over 20 years, and that's the first time I've ever ever really got hurt. So, and it's, so I, I I can actually my doctor actually said six months no sparring. So now I get, just get to do forms and. And help some of the younger belts, you know, that are getting ready. Uh, this was an all-black belt class, so we were playing a little heavier, rougher than we usually do. So, uh, anyway. Stay away from those black belts. I, I am one. <laughs> <laughs> kind of hard, too. But uh, oh, well. they, uh, the problem is most of them are 26 years younger than I am. Mm. So they're much faster. They're stronger. They heal quicker. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, I'm starting to realize that mm, time to put more pads on. <laughs> when we put, but uh, I I go now. I'll be spending probably most of my time now. I've uh, got we got a bunch of testing coming up. So we got some of the younger belts, you know, that are going to be testing for their greens and yellows and blues and stuff like that. So we'll, I'll be helping them out with their their stuff. So. And that's always rewarding because you know when you're when you start you know people work with you and you, when you finally get to an advanced level you have to you kind of have to give back so it's sort of like Linux you know once you start learning it you, a few tricks you try to give back to the community so you're an old wise sensei I don't know I'm not a sensei <laughs> I'm far from that I'm old yeah, this but well, old and wise, maybe. Uh, Come on, give yourself some credit here. Hey, bro. according to my <laughs> wife, I'm not. <laughs> she well, had no sympathy for me. I might point that out. No sympathy. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, Larry, you know, I have to say something about our Google Plus uh, community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you rock. We are absolutely. It is getting. Have you seen some of the conversations that have been going on in? In our community, I have, I have. They, Fascinating. They, some of them are, you know, are just hilarious, and some of them are, are good information. And um, 
I'm really pleased in how how friendly uh, that community's become, um, and yeah. how and how and how everybody helps each other out. It's really it really is a nice thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Ken in the in the Google Plus community and Rick actually caught a couple of errors in our last episode, and Ken posted something in the community, and Rick sent us an email, and that helped us to correct a few things and. As we start this episode, I'd like to just make that correction on you know uh, on the air because I know some folks don't uh, don't participate in the community and don't read the show notes; they just hear the audio. So I thought it was probably a good idea to correct those mistakes now. So if you'll bear with me, I'll I'll run through them. If you it, it, there's a list, <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens when I do a solo episode. Oh Bill. wait a minute! So, so wait a minute! I didn't make these errors. No, no, no. These were my errors. <laughs> oh, well, read on. <laughs> okay. So here we go. This is from episode 267. Uh, and I had mistakenly said Alt F3 would start a full screen terminal session. Well, that's not right. It's Control Alt F3 or any of the other F keys except 7 or higher. And there were a few other mistakes. So let me just run down the list of commands and say them all correctly so that everyone has the full correct list. First, to restart Cinnamon, it's Alt F2, which brings up a run dialog box. You type the letter R and then press Enter. That one I got right. Check one for Larry. Okay, <laughs> the next one, to restart X, Control Alt Backspace, if that's enabled in your particular distribution. I got that one right. To restart a responsive computer, so if you want to do a restart, but your computer is fairly functional, uh, but for some reason you don't want to just click the menu and go to restart, you want to do it from a command line, Control-Alt-F3, that's where I got it wrong, and then you type in the terminal, sudo, and then the word reboot and then press enter, and that will restart your system. To shut down a system that is still responsive, but maybe the graphical user interface is locked up for some reason, Control-Alt-F3 to get to a full-screen terminal, then sudo, and then the word halt, and then enter. And of course, after using sudo, it's going to prompt you for your password as well. So of course, you need to put your password in. Then the next thing is to re restart an unresponsive system. Control, Alt, System Request, and then slowly type the letters R-E-I-S-U-B while continuing to hold down those other three keys. And as I mentioned, those three keys are on opposite corners of the keyboard in some layouts, so it might be a bit of a stretch. And we have some listener feedback on another way to do that same thing without having to contort your hands all over the place. So I'll leave that correction until we get to that listener feedback. And then lastly, to shut down an unresponsive computer, this is your last resort. Press and hold the power button for two seconds or more, and it will force your computer to power off. And that's a last resort because if your computer is writing to a hard drive, at that time, or any sort of memory device at that time, whatever's on that memory device could very easily be corrupted. 
as soon as you do that. It's like pulling the power cord on your computer or having a lightning strike. So <laughs> either way, you risk some damage doing that, and that's why that's a last resort. But sometimes I've had to rely on that because there has been no way to shut down the computer or restart the computer or get it to respond. Sometimes things lock up. And you need that. And in Rick's email, he said, thanks for the correction. Updating my notes now. Glad I could help you catch the mistake. Now I'm helping another friend to go Linux. It's a Windows hate machine with UEFI going to do a dual boot. Wish me luck. 73, Rick. <laughs> and just, and just uh, to point out, you really can't get much past these hams because um, Rick's uh, call sign is, uh, I think it's NZ2I, I think it is. Mm -hmm. I, got, I got it written down. Let me look here real quick. Yeah, NZ two I it is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So so the ham called you making mistakes. I just want to point that yeah. out. So yeah. I wasn't there to do it, but Rick did. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. Ham's got to look out for one another. Uh, of, of course. So he he was actually filling in for me. So he called your errors. Of course, I wouldn't have called him anyway. I just uh, <laughs> agree with you. But, yeah. but uh, okay. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much, Rick, and uh, for Ken for picking up on those mistakes and anyone else who uh, caught them and sent us a note because a few people did. Well, you know, Ken, <laughs> Ken and Rick are really active in the in the Google Plus community. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. You can get, and they're both really good with Linux too, so you can catch a lot of uh, good uh, tips from those guys. Yeah, actually, I got to uh, talk to Ken about uh, my my Mac. <laughs> mm, okay, <laughs> it, it died. Uh, I gotta see. I think it's power supply, but uh, I need to talk to him about that. But that's something totally different. Doesn't this show? But it's reminded me. You know, hey, I, Larry, I haven't had enough coffee yet. Okay, so just oh yeah, anyway, yeah. You you ran out of coffee. I I, I, mean, right? I didn't run out of call. I did run out of coffee, but not by my hands. I didn't yeah, drink it. Yeah. Okay, but anyway, you just uh, um, fell off the counter or something, right? Yeah, fell off the counter. Uh, yeah. Rick and um, Ken, we really appreciate everything you do for us. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's get into our listener feedback. All right. Okay, so our first one is that correction from Glenn. He writes, uh, just a note on using the Control-Alt system request keys. You only need to hold down the Control-Alt keys and then press and release system request, followed by K to kill the server or R-E-I-S-U and B to restart. No need to try and hold down all the keys with the fingers of one hand. Thanks, Glenn. Oh, Glenn, you just saved me a lot of cramps in my fingers and hands and contorting things to try to reach those three keys and hold them down simultaneously while typing. So uh, thanks. That that helps a lot. What's the system request key? I don't see one on my... There's, it's right under the print screen key, usually. So there's a print screen. Uh, I don't mind. Upper right corner. No? Hmm. Okay. There is a print print screen key, right? There is. Okay. So that is the system request ah, key. Okay. It may not be labeled. I guess uh, on HP they don't yeah. label the system request. I don't know. They don't do it on my other machines either. None, none of the okay. three laptops I have here, none of them have system request on it. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know that there's much function for a system request anymore <laughs> for for your average computer user but um yeah this this would be one of them and so it's the print screen key 
Uh, and depending on your keyboard and whether you've got a laptop or not, you may also have to hold down the shift key because it, or the function key or something else to get to that system request. But if you don't see it on your keyboard, it's usually the same key as the print screen key. Okay. So there you go. Thanks, Glenn. Our next email comes from Rick, and he writes, Hi, Larry. I really enjoyed episode 267. I have always been frustrated when I have a system lock up or problems with Cinnamon. To help others, I took notes on the podcast and, and put them into a document for my reference. Perhaps you could add it to your show notes to help others. These tips might have helped me a few weeks ago as I had had a Linux Mint 17 Cinnamon 64-bit laptop and performed the upgrade to 17.1. Not a good idea for this machine. For some reason, I've had problems with Cinnamon after the upgrade. I could not change any settings in Cinnamon. I was very frustrated and attempted to repair Cinnamon by reinstalling Cinnamon components. But I messed up something and lost my entire accession. Boy, that sounds like me. Unfortunately, I did not have any of your nifty tricks from this episode, so I hit the horrible power button. I ended up installing 17.1 from a DVD, and I'm up and running again. I am still running 17 on another laptop, and I think it will stay that way, as I'm a gun-shy now. I still, I'm still going links. I hardly boot into the W now. I was finally able to dump a proprietary MP3 podcast program as I am now using a different player that is compatible with Banshee. I am even running a Plex media server on Linux for our home entertainment. I am deployed a Plex server for our church to support use of multimedia over the local network vice pulling from the internet. Keep up the great work on the best Linux podcast available. 73 Rick, NZ2I, and he writes, that's for Bill. <laughs> Richard, <laughs> computer science. And, uh, Richard, uh, this is for you. NZ2I, WB4BBC. There. Okay. Oh, that was, man, that was a long post. Uh, he's got his hands in more stuff in Linux. <laughs> he's, he certainly uh, knows what he's doing. He does. Or at least he's dabbling into a few things that maybe he's learning to do, but that's great. So what do you think happened when he was upgrading from, I guess, Linux Mint 17 to 17.1? What do you think happened? I don't know. It could have been one of those cinnamon crashes, especially if he did the upgrade just after the 17.1 release came out. There were a few fixes that they made following that uh -huh. to cinnamon that fixed a few niggly issues that I had. And it could have been that if he had been able to just simply restart the system using one of the tricks we've outlined that he would have been able to fix it uh, with one of the updates later on. But uh, sounds it sounds to me like maybe Cinnamon crashed on him or something. Oh, okay. I was just, it's really hard to tell. I was just wondering what could have possibly gone wrong because it, was, it wasn't a huge virgin upgrade or anything like that. And then, mm, so. No, but they did do some significant changes to a few things oh, okay. in the okay, system, especially around Cinnamon. They've done a lot of development in Cinnamon. Uh, over time, and they're constantly updating the features and moving things around to make it easier to use, easier to find mm -hmm. settings and things like that. So they've been doing a lot of work on it, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Richard, thanks for the email. Yes, thank you. Our next email is from Tom. 
He writes uh, about Ubuntu 14 backing up files to Amazon Glacier and maybe using scripts or cross FTP or he wants to know a little bit about it. He writes, I want to switch from Spider Oak to the cheaper Amazon Glacier for backups. Can you help me understand how to write the scripts I would need for rsync or grsync? Or direct me to better information than I found so far. I found partial information here, and he provides us with a couple of links to Lifehacker and another blog. I don't fully understand the instructions. A possibility I like less is to go with Cross FTP, a pay for proprietary app which is available in the Ubuntu Software Center. I would use Cross FTP mainly because I don't have the skills I need to write the scripts myself. If I use this, would I need to collect all the files I want to back up in Glacier and encrypt them before I send them to Glacier? Is there another client which works with Amazon Glacier which you would recommend to a non-programmer, a non-sysadmin, a relatively new Ubuntu user? Okay, Tom, since you... Uh, say that you don't want to be messing around with scripts and maintaining them and creating them and so on. I've included an article in the show notes, which we've already sent to Tom, by the way, uh, and it has some recommended clients for working with Amazon Glacier, and a couple of them are actually Linux compatible. So you can look at the write-ups and choose the one that's best for you. And uh, we'll include that, of course, in the show notes as well. I got a question. Uh-huh. Uh, I know what Spider Oak is, but I've never heard of Amazon Glacier. What is it? Okay, well, Amazon, as you know, is uh, a book and publishing sort of distribution company, and they have the Nook and all kinds of other things that they, they sell. Well, one of the services they have is uh, cloud storage, and Amazon Glacier is cloud storage for enterprise or for individuals. And as the name would imply, the backups and the retrieval is meant to be slow. Uh, so it's meant to be a long-term storage and a large backup, but it becomes affordable because you can back up your entire hard drive and you can retrieve any file from your hard drive, but it takes a while to do it. And so it's not using a lot of bandwidth. Is it cheap? Yeah. Uh, you know what? I've never looked into the cost of it because I'm not interested in using it, but let's take a look here. So uh, Amazon Glacier. Take a look. It's part of Amazon Web Services. Amazon Glacier is a secure, durable, and extremely low-cost storage service for data archiving and online backup. Customers can reliably, I'm reading from their site, of course, store large or small amounts of data for as little as one cent per gigabyte per month, a significant savings compared to on-premise wow. solutions. To keep costs low, Amazon Glacier is optimized for infrequently accessed data, when a retrieval time of several hours is suitable. So that's hence the name Glacier. Oh, okay. Well, one penny of gigabytes, not bad. Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. So you definitely, if you're using it for backup, you want to make sure you have uh, some sort of 
backup locally that you can use to restore in in the event of a catastrophe, like using Clonezilla or something. But if it's just a file and you just need to retrieve it and you don't care how long it takes, uh, that Amazon Glacier service might be affordable and usable for you. But if you don't want to mess around with scripts, uh, that article we have uh, linked to will give you some options as to which clients are compatible. Our next uh, email comes from Michael, and he writes, I just heard you read a couple of my emails on Computer America. This was the reply I got from someone on the Orca list as regards to my Firefox issue. And this, the reply goes like this. It goes, this sounds like you might be using an older version of Orca. If you're using the latest, it's from Ubuntu. It has Orca version 3.12, and there has been literally tons of Firefox improvements in 3.14. Orca used to loop over lines, repeat con continuously, fail to read certain lines. The issues were endless, but they have been largely fixed with 3.14. There's an accessibility PPA you can get for Ubuntu that has the latest Orca at SPI and Friends. I'm not sure of the name, but I am sure that if you do a Google search for something like a accessibility PPA for Ubuntu 14.04, you'll turn it up. If not, email me back and I'll do my best to find it. Epiphany should have worked at least a little with Orca, although it still needs improving which Joni says she's currently fixing. Chromium will probably never work with Orca itself. No idea why. When I tried to find out, I got the standard there isn't enough Linux users, so we'll only support Windows screen readers, etc. You can use ChromeVox, which will enable Chrome to speak if you want. Doing this in Ubuntu might be easy, or it might not. I know in Debian they removed something completely geekish from Chromium that keeps ChromeVox from working, and I'm not sure if Ubuntu has put that back in their package. If you need more help, don't hesitate to email me back, and I'll try to help. Welcome back to Linux. Thanks, Kendall Clark. And there's just a little bit more, and he goes, Recently, I think I also saw a comment from the main developer of Orca stating that the update to Orca 3.14 will be pushed to the Linux distros, which obviously are not as up-to-date with the version of Orca they have. Well, that's good to know. And it's uh, good that you did all the research in this, uh, Michael. So thanks very much for that. And uh, thanks to Kendall Clark for getting back to you on what the issues were and finding that uh, you simply needed to upgrade to the later version of Orca. So if there's anyone out there using Orca, using it with Firefox and finding the problem uh, that Michael was having, which was that the screen reader was repeating sentences, missing sentences, and just not behaving correctly, make sure you're using 3.14 or later of Orca, and apparently those, those issues will go away. Okay, well, that's good to know. Yeah, especially, absolutely. Especially for people that need the screen reader. Yes. 
Okay, our next email is from Martin, who writes, Thanks for the great show. I have been an InSync user on my Linux Ubuntu box for over a year now, and I really like it. It has its pros and cons, like most, if not all things. You mentioned the cost of $15 per Google account. If you go with the pro version, it's $15 for three Google accounts. Check it out, InSync.com slash pro. And it's insync, I-N-S-Y-N-C-H-Q dot com slash pro. Why do they have a Q when the name of it is InSync? Probably because the domain was taken. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> More than likely, yes. InSync's okay. a fan, too. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Our next email comes from Mark. And he writes, I'm trying to find how to install Maker in Linux Mint. And he writes, Terminal bash app git with a question mark or does he, he writes do you use the software manager I am trying to find a web link to learn more about maker website authoring software can you help John well John I'm going to have to turn this one over to Larry because he knows about the maker Yes. Okay, so Maker doesn't have a dev package or an RPM package per se that just simply installs by way of the software center. They do have some really good instructions on their website um, on how to install it. So if you go to the link at the bottom of any of the pages on our site, it will take you to the Maker site. Um, since we use the maker for our web content as well, that link will take you to their site. You can go to, uh, the, the Linux version of the software and in the readme file that comes up in their SourceForge uh, posting, uh, that readme file will give you the instructions that you need on how to install. And by the way, if for some reason you get stuck, don't, hesitate to contact the folks over at the maker they can help you out a little bit uh, and essentially what you do is you run some commands from the command line after you download the software and those commands run a script that does the installation for you what I have found though read through the readme uh, and use version 1.51 not 1.8 or later uh, the 1.8 versions are the Windows and OS 10 versions uh, they may have a few extra features, um, but the uh, Linux version is a couple of uh, releases behind, and you want to make sure you're on the 1.51 version, at least as of the date of recording of this episode. And you'll also note in the readme file that it says you have some prerequisites. You need to install Python 2.7 or later. You need a package called WXPython 2.8.12.0 or higher. And you need Python-Markdown 2. And I found that on Linux Mint, at least, I had to install those from the repositories uh, ahead of time. Uh, they didn't get installed as dependencies when you install the maker, so you have to install those first, and then you run the script, and then everything works. So, again, if you have some issues there, feel free to uh, contact the uh, folks over at the maker, and they'll be able to help you out there. All right. Good information. Yeah, it's definitely not something for your inexperienced Linux user. You need to know a little bit about uh, scripts and dependencies and that sort of thing. What's our next email? 
Our next email is from David. He says, I plan on installing Lubuntu on an SD card. I figure I will install it as normal, but it occurred to me that I could use UnetBootin to install the ISO and leave room to save changes. Which option is better? I also wanted to install on an SD card because I thought it would be just like using a solid-state drive. Is this true, or do I not have my facts straight? Well, David, um, okay. Which option is better? Uh, It's really almost a matter of personal choice. Um, Unit booting is certainly a way to go. If you have another distribution of Linux, many of the distributions of Linux have a USB stick creator or a thumb drive creator or some words to that effect uh, that allow you to burn the ISO 2 removable media. And all of them work just fine. Uh, most of them will make it as though it were a live CD or live DVD. And what you're talking about by uh, describing installing to an SD card and have it work like a normal distribution is either called persistent mode, and Pendrive Linux has some instructions on how you can do that. Or another way you can do it, if you've got an SD card, and I've done this quite successfully as well, just treat the SD card as though it were a hard drive and go through the installer and install it instead of to a hard drive, install it to the SD card. Of course, in that case, you have to have booted to a live DVD or a live uh, USB or something like that and go through the installer and then have it installed to the SD card as though it were a drive. Now, one of the downsides there is typically your SD cards are smaller than a solid state drive. And unless you have a high-performance SD card, it may not perform all that well speed-wise, even though it is solid-state, because there are different grades of SD cards. So if you're going to do this, you want to use one of the more expensive cards, which typically are the higher speed, higher capacity, uh, higher performance cards. And uh, uh, bear in mind that it isn't a solid-state drive. It's it's meant for temporary storage. It's not meant to run... Uh, a distribution off of. Having said that, it works just fine. I used uh, an, an SD card to run a lightweight Linux distribution for a number of years on uh, a computer that uh, wasn't <laughs> up to the hardware task of actually performing <laughs> with, with a hard drive, if you know what I mean. Uh, there was something wrong with it, uh, but it ran from the SD card just fine, and I installed the Linux distribution to, I think it was a 32 gig or 64 gig SD card. I think it was a 32 gig card, and it was an older computer, so it ran just fine from the 32 gig card, and I was using, I think it was either Lubuntu or Linux Mint with LXDE or something like that, and it ran just fine for years, no problem at all. And now I'm using that card as uh, storage. I don't need it anymore, so I just converted it back to a regular SD card and uh, use it for swapping files around. Yeah, I've actually heard people uh, that use uh, their uh, like an SD card as their operating system, and when they leave, they just take it with them. Yeah, yeah, it makes for a very nice portable computer where you don't have to have any particular hardware. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of nice. It is. Our next email comes from Dave. He writes, I want to migrate to Linux. Okay. Good. Okay, Dave. Go for it. (laughs) Then he writes, gents. (laughs) I love that. Gents, 
I want to migrate to Linux, but not sure which distro. I'm not sure if I like Ubuntu or Lubuntu, but they seem the easiest to set up. To start with, Mint might be an option. I have worked with Windows since Windows 95, and on a scale from 1 to 10, my comfort level is 7 to 8. I'm comfortable with the Linux directory structure, and I am comfortable with editing the files and can move around in VI. What I am not comfortable with is getting something working that breaks or is not working in the first place. My vision is to migrate our small business from Windows to Linux within the coming year. Where can I find relevant, up-to-date info for this project of mine? I am glad I found your site. Thanks to Charles Tyndale. Appreciate any help you can provide. Okay, uh, I'll, I've got some recommendations. Dave, mm -hmm. Ubuntu Mate is a great uh, one to go with. Uh, Linux Mint is a great one to go with. And if you can be running it in a business, I would say you should try... Oh, you never hear me say this again, Dave, okay? Just saying this, because this hurts me to say this. Uh, no, not not really. Linux Mint might be the better choice for you is if you're going to be doing, using it for the bit your business because it's the most, what would you say, complete, you know, reworks of the operating system? Yeah, it's it's got a lot of uh, things that are optional in Ubuntu and some other distributions already pre-installed. So for folks at work that... Uh, may not be caring whether or not they're using Windows or Mac or Linux or whatever and really just want to get their work done. By using Mint, you have fewer setup things to do after the fact, and you'll probably get fewer support questions and that sort of stuff. Yeah, you don't want support questions. But since Linux Mint is using the Ubuntu base, uh, they really got the best of both worlds. And those guys, uh, they do a, a pretty good job of Linux Mint. So... Yeah, I, I think I'd have to recommend, after hearing his wants and needs, I would say that a uh, something along the lines of, of Linux Mint would be the right choice. Uh, I don't think anything exotic would work. Well, as as you know, I would agree with that. And uh, thanks to Charles Tindell for sending you our way. And you've you've definitely got your work cut out for you, moving your small business from Windows to Linux. It's certainly doable. And we have some links in the show notes to uh, some articles on open source and business and Linux software equivalents. And you might want to also listen to episode 233 of the Going Linux podcast. We discuss this in a little depth as well. And I would recommend that you do this gradually, depending on how many people you have in your business. You might actually want to introduce open source applications under Windows first and then give the users an opportunity to gain some comfort with applications like LibreOffice or Thunderbird or Gmail instead of Microsoft Office and Outlook. And once they've become familiar with the applications themselves in their familiar uh, operating system, then you can switch the operating system, use those same applications under Linux, and the transition will be a little smoother. So that would be my recommendation. Yeah, just kind of, um, what would you you replace it with well you, you always use chrome for your browser so you know, that takes care of that mm. um and i guess you could use the um, LibreOffice. i mean get them used to the the to the, to the applications that are available in linux that are also cross-platform with mac and 
and Windows. That that's a, that's actually a smart plan. I, I yeah. didn't think about that. Yeah, just kind of take it one step at a time yeah. and not pull the rug, rug out from under your employees and change everything all at once. Just a little bit at a time and get them familiar with uh, the Office Suite and then the mail program and then a few but other applications they use. What's the fun of that? That's like makes sense. <laughs> it's almost like there's a plan to it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, when I was working for the hospital, this one day we walked in and everything was changed. No one knew anything. No one could get anything done. I mean that that was that everybody should experience that. Stop telling them to do it gradually. <laughs> yeah, okay. right. Come on. Yeah, no, on. nobody worries about those kinds of things. You no, know, we, we I, don't we don't want uh, him to have that easy of a time. I mean, planning. <laughs> Who plans? No, seriously, that's the, that's a real good way to do it. Fun, uh, go ahead and, and get using those applications. And that just that just works out so well. I, I think I think uh, that was the same, you gave that same um, information to someone else, and it, they t- took them. About a year to get everything switched over, so he, he could do it. Yeah, absolutely. That's our advice to you, Dave, and uh, thanks for the email. Thanks. Okay. Our next email is from Jalu, or Jalu, or... Jalu? Yeah, J-A-L-U. That's fun to say, Jalu. Yeah. Hello, Larry and Bill. On the last show, Listener Feedback, episode 266, you responded to Jesse and his concerns of configuring a VPN on Netrunner Linux in a triple boot configuration with Ubuntu and Windows 8.1. In your reply, you said that Netrunner is a KDE version of Ubuntu. Being a Netrunner user myself, I understood what you were saying, but in this case, I would like to clarify your statement for the unaware portion of the listening audience. Netrunner is a very stable running distro and can be freely downloaded in two separate versions. While it can be said that Netrunner 14 Frontier is based on Ubuntu, it is more accurately a Kubuntu variant as it is reported on the Netrunner website. Netrunner is based off of Manjaro Linux, a derivative of Arch Linux, but they offer the Kubuntu version for beginners and others that desire the stability and reliability of Netrunner. This version follows the Kubuntu support cycle, i.e. the LTS and other mid-release versions of a Kubuntu, and features a customized KDE desktop. I mention this because Netrunner is KDE-based, which may be a deterrent for some users. The second version is Netrunner Rolling, a release that adheres more towards Manjaro Linux, a completely different animal, still KDE-based, but features options that more experienced users can take advantage of and appreciate. Listener Jesse did not mention in his post, or perhaps you did not include it, which version he is using, but I suspect from your reply that it is Netrunner 14. I hope this helps. Well, it does, Jello. Thanks very much. I did not know that there were a couple of different versions of Netrunner, and thanks for clearing that up. Our next email comes from Tony, and he writes, I want to know the step-by-steps and how to copy and save YouTube videos on my flash drive or to a blank CD. Again, all the best, Tony. Well, Tony, um, if you go to nightwise.com and look for episode 807, he details, step-by-step, how to download YouTube videos. So we're not even going to try. Nightwise has done it. He's done a fantastic job. We'll just refer you to him. We'll have the link in the show notes. I taught Nightwise everything he knows. Just <laughs> actually, I didn't. <laughs> no, Nightwise. Yeah. I'm just. I'm kidding. Please. 
I think he's retrofitted that uh, jet engine that fell in his uh, yard, and uh, he's about ready to launch it back over the Atlantic towards us. Yeah. uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, Nightwise. I'll be good. Anyway, (laughs) hit Larry's house, not mine. Okay. Our next email is from Ken. Bill, eh, this one's to you, Bill. I have installed Ubuntu Mate on my AMD64 desktop. Installed a fresh 500 gigabyte hard drive, partitioned with GParted Live. I did the partitioning as you described in the screencast with slash root, slash home, and slash swap partitions. Ubuntu didn't recognize the partitions. I had to use the partitioning tool in the install process to identify the partitions for Ubuntu. I have dual screens. The screen setup won't let me activate dual monitor mode. So I am still stuck in the mode where the same information is shown on both screens rather than as one big screen. Mint does this fine but loses the second monitor when waking from auto sleep. I installed Chrome, which I had to do directly from Google. Then Ubuntu grumbled when I deleted Firefox. Otherwise, it looks good so far. Just letting you know how a medium-experienced Linux user was faring. So far, not as easy as Mint. Latest Mint for me is 17. Ken. About Ubuntu not seeing the um, the partitions, yeah. it could have been that he didn't have the flag set correctly. That yeah, could be that's one. possible. That's possible. Um, and I haven't reinstalled Ubuntu because I usually just pick. They're just saying, you know, just go ahead and install it, let them handle everything. Yeah. But I believe there's a custom custom button that you actually have to go in and tell it, okay, this is my home partition, this is my root partition, this is my, um, you know, depending on how many you know, partitions you set up, right. um, then this is my swap. Sometimes you've got to activate swap and stuff. So look for the next time to try it, look for the. The custom button, it might be say something like "Let me do it," or I'll, "I know what partitions I want," or something to that effect. Yeah. Now, as far as the dual screen, I've never run dual screen, so but Larry has, so I'm gonna let him answer that part of the question. Well, Ken and I have actually exchanged a few emails back and forth, and none of my suggestions have worked for him under certain distributions. So you know, he says he's. Uh, He's uh, got Ubuntu installed. He's tried it with Mint, and I forget which is which, but under one of them, the dual screens work just fine. On the other one, it doesn't recognize the dual screens. So I have a feeling that it has to do with the utilities under that distribution rather than uh, dual screen issue in Linux overall. So this is just one of those niggly little things that's different from one distribution to another. Uh, and I, um, uh, in my last email exchange with him, or perhaps he's posted on Google Plus, I don't remember now, but he said something about uh, he's got the dual screens working, but he can't control which one's left and which one's right. And he may just need to pick up one of the monitors and plunk it down on the opposite side. <laughs> so that, of course, is the uh, brute force way of making it work. And maybe that's what you just have to do. Well, I personally think we should blame Nightwise. Okay, let's blame Nightwise. But back, <laughs> but back on the partitioning. Um, yeah, so when you install Ubuntu, it gives you the option of uh, installing alongside any other operating system you have uh, and or installing 
and wipe out whatever's on the hard drive. And then there's do something else or, like you said, Bill, some other button that allows you to go into essentially a partition editor. And it used to be that Ubuntu used Gparted as part of, or at least the, the core basis of Gparted uh, as their... Uh, partitioner, and I haven't used Ubuntu in so long, I don't know whether they still do or not. But essentially, if you used that partition editor that comes with the distribution, uh, and that's part of the install process, you can set up your home root and swap partitions right from there. It sounds from reading your email like you used Gparted first. And that's fine. You can do it that way. But you still do have to go into your installer and tell it where those things are, which is what you said you did. So I think you've done things exactly correct. And it looks like everything's working for you from that perspective. We just have to figure out what the monitor thing is doing. Yeah. Our next email comes from Michael and he writes, Hi, I did get an answer to my sonar problem from Kyle as regards to my problem updating a fresh install, which is now resolved. It is fairly technical, but I will include it in this email in case anybody else maybe has difficulty in perhaps doing a fresh install of the current release of Sonar. Although I have read on the list there is due to be a new release. Larry, he's got he's, he's got a bunch of different commands. I, I would say probably the easiest was for the, anybody that's having these problems to come to these show notes and read them. Yeah, I think um, we won't include the whole set of okay. instructions that he got from Kyle, but suffice it to say that he uh, Kyle walked him through uh, a problem that maybe the keyring package had, he's found uh, some commands to fix it, and then looks at the bottom like Kyle was going to get back to the package maintainer for the Arch Linux keyring and see if he could get that fixed for future releases. So hopefully that takes place and... Uh, it will be fixed for not only Michael, but anyone else using Sonar and any other issues that may have cropped up as a result of this Arch Linux keyring thing. Okay? All right. Sounds good. And it looks like that brings us to uh, Linux in the Wild story. Okay. Let's go for it. I was over at the hospital visiting some of uh, my nurse friends, and they got these brand new uh, x-ray machines, mm -hmm. and they run Linux. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I was watching as they were using it, and I saw that I believe it said Fedora or something to that effect. But whatever it is, it is Linux, and uh, they seem to like them. So, hey, Linux could be looking uh, at your bones in your hospitals very soon. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, that's good. Linux in the wild. And if you have... Linux in the Wild uh, story that you want to relate to us, send us an email and we'll uh, read it out here on the Going Linux podcast. Our next episode is What to Do When Things Go Wrong on Linux Advanced. Uh, yes, some of us need <laughs> that more than others. <laughs> Bill does. Until then, go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. And if you like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux Podcast Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73.
Theme music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.